Network Automation Nerds Podcast. Hello, welcome to Network Automation Nerds Podcast, a podcast about network automation, network engineering, Python, and other interesting technology topics. I am your host, Eric Cho. Today on the show, I am super excited to welcome my friend, James Freeman, co-author of Mastering Ansible, now in its fourth edition. And besides being a published author, James works as a senior technical account manager at AWS, which is the leading public cloud provider, as well as an empowerment coach. I am super excited to welcome James to the show to talk about Ansible, infrastructure automation, cloud, his personal journey, and much, much more. So let's dive right in. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you, Eric. Really great to be here. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's nice to see you again. I remember we first met at the uh, at one of the Ansible Fest. You actually traveled all the way from overseas to, to uh, was, was it Austin or was it somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, it was in Austin that we met, yeah. Yeah, what was the topic that you spoke on? Did you remember at Ansible Fest? Um, that one, I think, was I made some major changes to a production environment on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> and that was nice. like, we, we all know that that's like a massive no-no. So it's like, yeah. That what was, could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was that must have been an interesting topic. Um, I think we talked about me and my manager uh, at the time. Well, still my manager uh, at the time. I think we talked about DDoS. But um, but you talked about you know making major change and uh, was it fun? Like what was the gist of the talk about? So, I think the the angle of the whole thing was that this is something that you just don't do. <laughs> okay, you know you and I both know this. Who authorizes changes to technology environments on a Friday? Right, unless right. you want to work, unless you want to work Saturday, maybe you're on an overtime contract. But most people <laughs> are like no, let's not. Right and. The whole angle of the talk was it was actually led by events that happened at a client I was working for, a retailer in the UK. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it was really unusual because they were so enthused by Ansible. They'd never had an automation technology in-house before. They were doing everything by hand. And when they saw how repeatable and how fast things were with Ansible, they were like, hey, we don't have to be so afraid of changes anymore because there's less risk of human error. We know that if it worked in one place, it should, that famous word in worlds of technology, (laughs) it should work everywhere else. So they were like, um, and obviously timescales, because I was doing consultancy there, timescales were tight. So there was also a time constraint. And they were like, well, let's just do this because it looks like we can trust it. And yeah, it worked. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So, So it actually worked. It didn't become some kind of like, Core story over the weekend that you have to pull five different overtime over? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I think that's why it was a talk. You know, I think if I'd done it and then I'd worked all weekend to fix the mess that I created, that would <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that on a Friday, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that would have been a, a good comeback story, right? Like, oh, I messed it up and the client, you know, kind of lost interest, but, you know, we, we saved the day. But even better that you it worked the first time uh, you pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So um, obviously you're super, you know, knowledgeable in Ansible. Ansible has been kind of in your blood for the last few years. 
But even before all the Ansible on the cloud stuff, um, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into technology, um, what interests you the most, and kind of your origin story? Sure. Yeah. So I can't really tell you when I decided I was going to work in technology. I just sort of followed. I was one of these kids at school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I was interested in maths and physics and things like that. I was a complete geek. And my hero when I was a kid was my grandfather who worked. um, His final job before he retired was a lecturer at a technical college. But in his earlier days, he worked at a site in the UK called Hanslope Park. Now, everybody's heard of Bletchley Park in the UK, but less famous is Hanslope Park, which was like its sister site. So he was Mm -hmm. one of these really smart guys that could do the cryptic crossword and all these things. I mean, I just looked at the crosswords and I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. But (laughs) I always loved that he seemed to be able to fix anything, particularly electrical things. And so I did a degree in electronic engineering. I went out then and got on a graduate program for 3Com, who were a really big name back in 1998. But they Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, 3Com was the bomb. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I remember, excuse me, attending, you know, company all hands where we were like, yeah, we're number two to Cisco and our game this, our goal this year is we're going to beat them, we're going to be number one. And then it's like, yeah, we all kind of know how that one ended. <laughs> the time, it was, yeah, they were serious. Yeah, I think at the time, because it was gearing toward the, uh, the dot-com bubble, right? So I think at that time, Cisco was actually had, I think it was 99 that Cisco actually had the biggest market cap as far as like Fortune 500. And if 3Com was number two, uh, think about the number of ports and the kind of growth acceleration they had. But uh, like you, I kind of came into the technology during that time frame, So I definitely concur that 3Com was and probably still for a good time after still uh, is the uh, uh, a major player in the in the field. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I think they just they made a few bad decisions. You know, we're, we're not here to sort of hash over people's past business decisions, obviously. But, <laughs> you know, they didn't survive the dot com bubble bursting and. Yeah, it's such a shame because I remember some of the stuff that we did. I was a hardware engineer back then, and yeah, we we really used to test things to destruction. You know, the quality of the products was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I remember they were pretty strong research and development. Uh, perhaps the marketing and the sales and marketing kind of you know wasn't their strong suit, if I remember correctly. But um, but anyway, so you you got you had your double E degree. Um, it seems like the the world was your oyster. You were at three com, and then then what's what's what what happened next? So then there is sort of a a, a downturn in my mm. career, or, or at the time what I perceived as a downturn. I mean, it's, it's like everything has a silver lining, right? Because exactly. if I hadn't been through that, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. So, but I think when I chose to leave three com, I was on my fourth redundancy threat. Mm-hmm. So sort of every six to 12 months, we or the whole the way the employment law works in the UK, they had to put the whole workforce on consulting, uh, consultancy, something like that. I forget the word now, but basically there are processes in the UK about how you can make people redundant. Mm-hmm. So right. on the fourth round of that, I went, actually, I don't want to do a fifth round. I'm going to go. So myself and a few others went to spun off a little company gave it a go by ourselves for 
I think that lasted about 18 months. I mean, again, I saw the writing on the wall and I got out at about the 12-month point because I kind of saw what was happening. I didn't want them to fail because I actually, you know, I cared about the people. But Mm -hmm. when you've got a, you know, a a family, I was married by then and it was like, yeah, okay, I've got to think about me too. Right, right. I what went was that? What was the what was the startup or the company that you co-founded about? What? So it was it was computer networking. Okay. Again. So we had we'd observed that three com had dropped a lot of its sort of routers and enterprise products, mm-hmm. um, and that you know I think that was one of the places my personal opinion where they kind of wrong footed themselves. Sure. And so we set about, okay, we've got all this expertise that we gained. Let's see if we can design some high-end switching gear that, you know, we can sell. And potentially not under our own name, but, you know, if we can sell it to someone else and they'll put their badge on it, that would be good for us. We'd be happy. Oh, I see. I see. So you're kind of a small shop and you actually sold hardware versus, you know, some kind of software. And you you try to be the white label for some of these bigger name uh maybe just OEM to you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, Howard is always a tough business, right? So, you know, it's, it's kind of um, the hit miss ratio is actually geared toward the miss side, of course. Um, But, but, um, you know, you, you gave it a shot and uh, it didn't, didn't really work out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, I was really lucky when I started in the industry as a hardware engineer, the margins on hardware were significant and companies could afford to plow that back into R and D and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, without getting us into a discussion about the ethics of it and everything else by 2000, 2001, we were competing against first Taiwan and then China and yeah. people who were working sort of 15 hours a day and then sleeping under their desk. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I, it's like I, I put my hands up. I can't compete with that. I don't want to compete with that, right. you know. So, yeah, that, that was like that, that was a game changer for the industry, certainly for those of us who worked in America, in, the, in Western Europe on technology, because it was like, wow okay, we are seriously being undercut. And on the surface of it, the products do exactly the same thing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. But I'm sure those experiences actually gave you a different kind of perspective and, of course, opening up different doors for you as far as, you know, just kind of the knowledge and the connection that you made during that time frame. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, hugely. And I think one of the the most important things that I learned from it was actually going from being a sort of inward-focused employee to being outwardly focused, focused on clients, focused on customers, focused on vendor relationships and that kind of thing. Because 3Com in its sort of final years outsourced everything. It produced very little itself. It Mm. just itself, it became a badging shop as opposed to an actual designer of kit. Um, But that brought with it a whole new set of skills and experiences. So as you say, that was valuable in itself. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because, um, I mean, like you said, the hardware margin is nowhere near the uh, software margin. But at the same time, if you look at current, you know, networking vendors like Arista or, um, you know, some of the newer ones, Cumulus, for example, is still high. It's just not as high as software. Um, and they do kind of a combination of they keep a lot of the smarts in-house, 
but outsource the manufacturing to you know some of the other uh, places that you mentioned, uh, first Taiwan or China or these other places. And also there's like the Pika Eight where they they kind of do the other way around, right? They start as the OEM and then move into uh, you know kind of having their own own brand and so on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch the market unfold, and I, I think that was where. Three comma again, personal opinion. Sort of, they they put a foot wrong. Is they they outsourced everything, including the IP. Whereas mm-hmm. today, at people like Apple, like just exactly as you said, all the the IP, the software, the technology is in house, developed and owned, but the manufacturing is outsourced. The you know, and the the creation, the capabilities to create the the casing, the hardware, the circuit boards, all of that. Right. Right. Yeah, interesting. So you you kind of got the chops in like sales and marketing. You kind of uh, have yourself exposure to um, these uh, manufacturing side of things. Um, but you know that that ended up you, that ended up being folding. And is that when you went uh, going to kind of the uh, value added reseller world, or was that somewhere in between? That was so that came later. So that okay, this precipitated my move into IT. Okay. And I got my first job, my first official IT job at um, Red Bee Media, which is part okay. of the BBC. And mm-hmm. I was a support engineer there for a few years and then went on to Betfair for a few years doing, I suppose, architecture. Mm-hmm. Best way to the K encapsulate what I did. And then on to Tesco in the UK. So I kind of hopped around a bit. Now, all of these were Linux-focused roles. They were all inward-facing again. So this for this part of my career, I kind of put down the whole vendor relations thing, outsourcing thing, and focused on technology, learning technology, design patterns, those kind of things. Was so, it a hard transition for you to kind of move into IT? Because obviously you were... Uh, pretty senior role and the co-founder of a company. Uh, but you mentioned you were in the supporting role back into IT. How was that transition like? We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Esprit Devora. I created Women in Tech so listeners could walk away feeling, if she can do it, so can I. I do not have an inclination if I will succeed at this, but I have nothing that will hold me back. It's not anything new that women are here. It's new that we're hearing our stories. I'm afraid of doing, but I'm too curious not to do it. You have a lot more power than you probably think you do. You got this. Subscribe to Women in Tech wherever you get your podcasts. So I think for me, I... I've been one of these lucky people that I my job is what I enjoy. And <laughs> nice. When I saw that hardware design in the UK was like, I mean, you know, I've still got friends who are hardware engineers in the UK. Sure. But the market is more difficult than it was 20 years ago. And I for sure. went, I'm going to make a strategic change here for me. Now, being involved in computer networking, although I was a hardware engineer, I was constantly around software and computers and that kind of thing and it was an era where we were moving from hubs and switches to devices with layer three capabilities so all the testing equipment was becoming increasingly reliant on things like linux so it was almost an organic change because i'd been increasingly around all of this computers was always one of my hobbies 
you know, one of my things I did for fun in the background. So it was like, okay, this is the next logical place for me to go if I'm not going to be a hardware engineer. Right, right. So you're like, okay, I'm going to start doing network configuration, management, whatever the client wants, supporting. Is that how you got into Ansible or was that uh, something else that came later that triggered that? So more or less, I mean, the that period of my career where I was inward focused, I, I didn't realize it at the time, as I guess most people don't, but that was actually building the foundations for Ansible. And what I seemed to go through was I seemed to go through a lot of experiences where I was either directly involved in or around people that were constantly firefighting. (laughs) You know, it it was like there there never seemed to be any of these sort of closed loops. Yeah, Yeah. A problem would happen and it would get fixed and you could guarantee that the same same thing was going to happen again. Yeah. It was just a matter of when, you know. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you sort of watched all these really talented people that you were working with running in circles, basically, just doing the same things over and over again. It's like, I at the time, that must have sown a seed, like there must be a better way. But I went through three sort of experiences where that was common. So yeah. there was a piece of me that also assumed, hey, this is normal. This is what working in IT is all about, you know. Right. Right. We, we've all read the Dilbert comics, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, there's, there's a reason they exist. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's funny. You mentioned Dilbert. I haven't heard about Dilbert in a, in a long time, but, um, but yeah, no, I was a big fan. And, you know, the, uh, um, I think Scott Adams, right. Like, and the, he was an engineer at AT&T. So he was actually from the telecom uh, side of things too. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, I, I, I went through a few experiences where it was like, you know, I, I read his comic strips and it was like, yeah, I, th- these have been written by someone who has lived this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. Um, yeah, anyways, um, so you were um, you were trying to look for a better way to do things. So obviously, you know, there were repeatable failures that people were firefighting for. That's kind of like the story of my life, too. But you know that that's another story for another day. But um, but you were just looking for a, a better way to do things. And uh, what what time frame was this? Because that kind of ties back into like the version of Ansible you were using when you first get started on on that framework. Sure. So it all kind of changed about God longer ago. I, I keep thinking this is recent, and it's actually about eight nine years ago now. So. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Yeah, for sure. But, um, yeah, I I got bored, basically. And I was like, I want to go do something a bit more cutting edge, a bit more fun. The thing with working in big corporate environments, at least as I had experienced them at that time, mm-hmm. is they're always behind the technical curve because they need something that's robust, tested, yeah. safe. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that makes, I understand why that is, but I was like, I want something, I want up my skill set. I want to learn. And so I went off and joined a value-added reseller, which you alluded to previously. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. was when everything sort of changed because we were primarily, when I joined, we were a Red Hat Premier Partner. Oh, okay. But as time went on, we picked up other technologies like Nargios. I I never know if I'm pronouncing that right. but (laughs) Me neither. It's okay. You just (laughs) just say whatever you want and... I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. I'm sure that there's people watching this who are like, he said that wrong. 
you yeah, know, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it should be Nagios, but uh, anyways, yeah, it's okay. You're good in my book. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> so yeah, we we picked all of that up, and I was picked up originally as a pre-sales engineer, which was kind of interesting because it was all figuring out if things that the client wanted were possible, building demos, that kind of thing. Right. And then that morphed into an architecture and consultancy role in its own right because it was a small business. It was one of these businesses where you could pretty much pick and choose your role. And so that that was really exciting because it was back being client-focused again. It was back in the world of, okay, I'm seeing what people are doing in the real world with technology, what their pain points are. And then one day our director um, says to me, hey, Anthropofest is in London. Do you want to come with me? Mm-hmm. And I I probably should have known about Ansible at that point. This was, I don't know if this was 2014 or 2015, but this was a long time ago. And I hadn't even heard of it. And I just went, yeah, sure, I'll come along. It's a day out of the office, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was it. I mean, I think the thing that I was so taken with was how enthusiastic everyone was there. Yeah. The whole conference was just the vibe was the same as when we were in Austin in 2018. There's so much passion behind it. There's so much like, hey, we're going to make changes to the world with this, you know? Right, right. Um, And I I think... Sorry, you go. No, so I was going to say, so 2014, that was after... No, that was before Red Hat acquired Ansible, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I met people like Bill Nottingham and some of the original founders of Ansible there. And then some of them I I met, I think, in Austin in 2018 as well. But it was, as you say, they were independent then and then they got acquired by Red Hat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that time because, um, um, of course, there was this enthusiasm and uh, for a good for a startup, and they were doing a lot of things that were unique, uh, like antipotency, uh, 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 you know, not agentless, that sort of stuff. And that really tie into the networking world. Of course, you know, I, I think out of all the you know automation frameworks, you know, like you you're talking about Solstack, you're talking about uh, Puppet Chef and Ansible, they were actually doing something unique, and they were doing something very exciting. Um, at the time, so so obviously you went to the uh, Ansible Fest, and I think if I remember correctly, they tried to do it in Europe, in uh, in the U.S. In the U.S., they tried to do it one year in the East Coast, one year in the West Coast, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that that sounds familiar. Um, and and then you know, by the time I was really getting into it, and I was like, hey, I'm going to be a serial speaker at Ansible Fest, and then and then COVID. Right. And everything changed. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. And then everything just become non-physical tied in. Everything was virtual. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been to several virtual conferences over the last two years. I even spoke at Ansible Fest last year, but um it was good. And I think the involvement, the engagement in the virtual Ansible Fest, it was probably one of the best virtual conferences I attended. Um mm-hmm. Obviously, I didn't attend all of them, but, you know, I I went to some and I'm not going to name any names, obviously, but it it was kind of like, is there anybody here? No one's one's engaging. And, you know, I think the experiences of the virtual conference world have been really, really variable. Yeah, I I would agree to that. I think it's just a matter of 
the mindset of the organizer. Sometimes the organizers just thought we'll put the same agenda, but we'll deliver it virtually, right? Um, and those are tend to be the ones that doesn't deliver as good of experience because those agenda were meant for physical. But yeah. for those organizers who have the virtual in mind and um, kind of plan it accordingly, those are the ones that kind of gave us either the participant or the speaker more more excitement that way. So, um, so I'll give you an example. You know, for the Puppet Python Meetup, they actually have social event, but how do you do it in a virtual environment, right? So they actually have a, a place where that is has the sound proximity. So you become like a little virtual dot on the screen. And if you move yourself toward the stage, you actually hear the music and it's almost like, you know, you're, oh, you're in that environment. And then you can cool. actually, yeah. And you actually drag yourself to like the corner, like say, hey, I bump into James virtually. And we want to have kind of a quiet uh, conversation without being interrupted by the music. We could both uh, go to like a corner of the conference room, just like in the physical world. And we'll have a conversation that way. So, so I think it's two ways. It's the mindset of the organizer, as well as picking out tools like, you know, proximity sound. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, I mean, that's impressive. I haven't witnessed that myself. I think, the other thing I found about Ansible Fest was the the gamification. Yeah. So, and I hadn't really thought about this at the time, but you know, when you go to a real conference, you pick up three hundred stickers and backpacks, <laughs> and it's like you know everybody's playing. How much swag can I get, and who can I? Yeah, meet? yeah. You have a pair yeah. of new socks for the next month. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And then you go to a you know some of the virtual conferences, and it's like it, it's basically you might as well be browsing YouTube. It's just a, as you say. The agenda just goes out. It's a series of videos, and it's it's missing it. And then you know, I, I think Ansible Fest last year they had this points based system, so you got points by visiting the different virtual booths and things like this. And then there were the same sort of competitions you'd have at the physical conference, like hey, you know, if you get this many points, you're in to win a Bluetooth smart speaker or, or something like that. So nice. it gives you that sort of reasoning to actually go around and engage, as opposed to yeah, I'm just gonna sit and watch a video while I shop on amazon or do whatever <laughs> not browser tab you know <laughs> it's like yeah 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 so um no uh you know like drunk shopping so it's like okay no no like conference shopping right because you're stuck in front of it and then you start ending up buying five thousand dollar worth of socks or something like that on amazon yeah yeah there's there's nothing worse than not being engaged in sort of virtual material for sure and it, it's it's a real challenge i mean i know there's been talk in the press of zoom fatigue and things like that you know i think that the world the last two years has really challenged people i think a lot of people have pulled together really well and i think it's been really positive but i think it's really challenged us to look at how we engage what we can do virtually i'm going into the office for my job tomorrow and i'm really looking forward to it because i work virtually and that's great, but I'm looking forward to some human interaction, you know? <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I don't think it's the same. And I think um, people who could adapt the hybrid model like uh, you alluded to for AWS, um, that really is um, that is really awesome, right? Like you pick and choose the best of both worlds. You can have both human interaction as well as uh, working on things virtually when you need to concentrate and when life demands you to be a certain you could still be productive that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's what we'll awesome. end up with is this sort of hybrid model, yeah. Yeah, especially as the cloud 
about um, account manager, right? Like, so, so it's kind of interesting how your career progresses, right? Like, so you were very focused technical engineer on double E, you start, you know, doing development research, but gradually you go into kind of a pre-sale role where it's a combination of sales and uh, a technical ability. And now you kind of fully transition into a, uh, uh, account manager role. So how 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 did that go? I mean, I'm curious. So I guess I got asked that question at the interview as well. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I better think quick about this. Because yeah. to me, it wasn't... Obviously, you passed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the good news. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. I, I think to me, it didn't feel like a transition. It didn't feel like a change because... In the previous role, everything I did was client-facing. It was all about supporting clients with their architectures and designs. And when they ran into trouble, I would help them because not everybody can write a good support ticket, as you know. You know, there's huge variance out there and that kind of thing. So I used to help people write support tickets and manage problems and stuff like that. Um, And then I got asked during the interview process, why do you want to move back into support? And I was Mm. like, you know, in my head, it was like, I hadn't really thought about it. As far as I'm concerned, this is just me progressing what I've been doing. I've been taking care of clients for a long time. And yeah, I'm going to do less architecture now. But Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. You know, it's focusing on other people, what their technology needs are and helping them get the best from it. So um, yeah, and I, I think I framed my answer in more or less those terms. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's a good tip for for, I guess, incoming people who maybe have engineering chops, but they want to move into kind of a business-focused role too, is, you know, you're just, from your point of view, you're just helping others, right? And then you're just, doesn't really matter which side you're standing on or which role you're standing on. At the end of the day, you're customer-focused and that's what counts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my whole career, technology is important, don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, you couldn't walk into a role I've done and not have seen Linux before and then be like, hey, okay, I'm going to be a Linux sysadmin, you know. It would be, <laughs> that would just be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I got the job at, at 3Com, or long time ago now, my only work experience prior to that had been a summer job at Maplin in the UK, who, who've gone bust now, but kind of like Radio Shack in the US. So yeah. yeah. store. And I was amazed that the interviewers were far more interested in the experience I'd had in this summer job dealing with people than they were in the degree. I, I just spent four years getting a master's in electronic engineering. Yeah. And I thought that was going to be like, I've spent four years doing this. That's the be all and end all. And they're like, no, we're more interested in how you deal with people at your summer job. And I'm like, okay, yeah. this is interesting. Take note. Right, right. But my whole career, I, I think, yeah, you've got to know the technology. But it's all about people, because at the end of the day, it's people who build it, it's people who work with it, and then it's people. You know, we're we're using technology right now to record this podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah, that kind of mirrors my own uh, perception and my own experience as well, especially for like a larger uh, provider such as AWS and Microsoft, right? Like, so they're not so much interested in what you already know, but your capacity to grow. Because they just assume they have to teach you everything. They assume yeah. like whatever you learned in school or previous jobs, all out the window. I mean, not everything, but like 70% is out the window. They have to train you to become, mold you into this 
role that they have in mind. So they're more interested in you know your personal skills, your people skill, how well you write, you read, and communicate. Uh, so that that kind of resonates with me as well. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, awesome. I, I think people in technology are lifelong learners, and you know, I, I come across that a lot. I know I am. I, I get bored if I'm not learning something new. You know. <laughs> Obviously, right? And, you know, yeah. speaking yeah. of reading and writing and communication, you know, so um, so I know you you recently published the Mastering Ansible fourth edition, but I know you've been, and it says co-author, you, but you've been the main person writing ever since the second edition. So can you take us a little bit of a, a journey on, you know, writing the second edition, how you came about the opportunity all the way to, you know, publishing the fourth edition? Sure, sure. So I'd always, I've always been a prolific writer, not, you know, I, I've never gone, or at least before the books, I hadn't ever gone pro with it. I had a couple of false starts at blogging that never really went anywhere. And that was mainly because <laughs> I'd write a few articles and then I'd do nothing for nine months. And then I'd be like, this looks really bad because there's a nine month gap. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, like a lot of us, you know, you're not alone in that for sure. But no. No, I found some great technical answers on blogs that are clearly dead, but it's like there's just this nugget out there that's like got me out of a jam. And it's like, I'm still grateful for whoever wrote that blog and gave up on it, you know? Right. You know, <laughs> so, thank you, Buzzbeater129, for writing, you know, blog back in 1988 that solved my problem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed writing. So it's always been there. I always wanted to write a book. Um, I was going to write a self help book originally. And then that, um, that didn't happen for one reason or another. I think just partly confidence in the, the subject matter and getting out there and things. And then it was not long after I came back from Austin, actually, and mm -hmm. the uh, the Ansible Fest there. I don't know whether there were people from Packet at Ansible Fest or exactly how I got picked up, but just one day out of the blue, they reached out to me on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and said, hey, we need someone to update the third edition of Mastering Ansible. Oh, the third right. edition. I thought it was the second edition, but uh, I was wrong, probably. No, no. I um, I th the second. I'm pretty sure the second edition was still Jesse Keating's work. Got it. Got it. And then the third edition was the one I edited. So obviously, I you know, I've been very careful to make sure I give him credit because even now in the fourth edition, there's still code in there mm -hmm. that is based on his work from the first edition. Sure. You know. Sure. It's, um and it's not that i um i'm too lazy to rewrite it it's that actually you know it, it's good it's good stuff and right. one of the great things about ansible is it's grown it's evolved there's so much more to it but you can still take code certainly the simpler stuff that would have run under the early 2.0 releases and run it under ansible 5 and it still works and mm -hmm. that's you know it's so great that you don't have to completely refactor your code so I've, I've taken us a little bit off topic there, but yeah, basically back, back to your question. Yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. I love it. I, I love the fact that you were giving Jesse uh, credits and, and uh, yeah, I've actually met Jesse because he's actually living where I live in the Seattle area. And he was the co-founder co for the Ansible meetup uh, locally. And okay, that's where cool. I met him. But, uh, but I think he, he got busy and life happened. So he actually dropped out of hosting these meetups. And that was like maybe two, three years before COVID. Okay, sure. Sure. Which is about the same time I picked the books up. So yeah. Exactly. 
life happens, as you say, to to all of yeah. us. So yeah. yeah. So the third edition, they found you, and uh, you were you were gun hole. You were like, let's do it. Absolutely, absolutely. So got got stuck in there and updated that, and it, you know it was quite an undertaking. It was particularly doing a full time job at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a son who is on the autistic spectrum, so it's like talk about learning time management and life management skills. You know, there's a whole set of soft skills behind the fact that this happened at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was really interesting. I learned a lot about Ansible. You know, I knew a fair bit before I started the book, but there was a lot that I had to learn as I went along as well because there's a lot of little 80-20 rule. You can use probably 20% of the features in Ansible to do a lot of meaningful stuff. And then when right. you're going to write a book like Mastering Ansible and you're looking at, okay, how do I write my own plugin in Python for Ansible? It's like there's probably not a lot of people that have had to do that. Right. But if you're going to write a book on it, you've got to know how to do that. So, yeah, it was quite an interesting experience because there was a lot of digging through the code and learning to be done. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but when when I'm writing something, like even if I like 99% sure, right? Like I was 99% sure this is how it works. I would still look it up just to make sure of that 1% of possibility that it might be error. So it sounded like that's something you went through as well. Like, you know, fair bit, but there's still little gaps that you you need to fill in, even though you're probably in that 0.5% of people who's doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And your name's going in print, right? You know, because I know you've got yeah. books out there as well. It's like it's got your name on the front, and it's like, yeah. So if I get this wrong, it's going in print <laughs> with my name against it. It's like, right. <laughs> it's a whole new dimension of like, you know, just just I, I don't know, um, imposter syndrome, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and like, yeah, okay, talk about all eyes on me, no pressure, right? You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. James Freeman said this, and it was like, oh well, you know. Uh, anyways, but. Yeah. So no, you were you were writing the third edition. Um, I'm sure there was a fair bit of of an update, and it's kind of funny that fourth edition came out, and I noticed it before you did. Yeah, that that was classic. That was yeah. absolutely classic. Um, but I must admit that that the timing of that coincided with my decision to leave my previous role and move to AWS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way we did the the consultancy at the previous role was we would sell blocks of time to clients and sure. we'd say, we really don't mind how you use this, just use it up within a year. So mm-hmm. a lot of clients had banked hours. Yeah. Uh, I had to give three months notice. So I gave my three months notice and the clients went, shit, he's leaving. <laughs> book, book, book. And I ended up booked up back to back until oh, my very okay. last day. And oh, that okay. I just, I had no time for anything. And that's like, and even the launch of my own book passed me by because I was just like trying to fend off the <laughs> You're trying to survive. And it's like, what is this book thing? It's no big deal, man. Come on. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to eat and sleep. Everybody writes books, right? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny how, um, how that worked out. So it's like, I don't know. It, it's probably like a good comparison, but I think of when you say that, I, I think of like ice cream punch cards that what I did when I was little, right? Like you go to an ice cream shop and they will say, I'll take your money for 10 scoops and you can redeem it anytime. So it's kind of like that with the VAR, VAR they, they sell the blocks, a bunch of blocks of time and they can like redeem it as long as you're, you're around, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and as 
being good at your job is, you know, without wanting to sort of be conceited, is like it's a it's great. It's also a rod for your own back because if you yeah. do decide to move on, people are like, no, I want your time, you know. <laughs> and it, right. It, and they already it, pay for it. It's not like they're asking something unreasonable. It's just so happened that it all compressed into a short period of uh, time frame. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And like you say, they paid for it. And it's not like we could go, well, I mean, we could have given their money back, but it's not the same because they they actually have things that need doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they said, I don't want my money back. I want James. In, yeah. Put his butt in the seat and configuring some Ansible playbook for me. Yeah, you got it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, you know, but I'm glad it worked out for you. I'm glad you survived. Obviously, you're looking well and, and handsome, my, my friend. And uh, you're in AWS, which is doing great. Um, so I, I, I'm wondering what's new in the, uh, in the fourth edition? Like what warrants the, the update? Was it a big lift for the fourth edition between third and fourth? I think, well, y- yes and no, for okay. sure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I say that is... I think psychologically there was a big shift and that it was big for the publisher as well because Ansible was working off the 2.x releases and they just seemed to go on and on. Yeah, and I remember that. Versioning, and it's like Ansible 4.0 is coming out. Um, mm. You know, there wasn't even a 3.0. And so there's such a shift in version numbers there. It's like just from a marketing point of view for a publisher, it's like, well, we can't just sit with a book on Ansible 2.0. Seven, which I think the third edition is based on, <laughs> you know, yeah, because yeah. people, why, why would people, why would you want to buy a book on something that looks like it's massively out of date because of the version number changed? Right. Um, right. It wasn't a small one, like you said, right? They were like, 4.0 must be gooder. So <laughs> what is this yeah. 2.7 crap? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. But I, I mean, there's there's lots and lots of changes, not so much in the core engine. The biggest change was the switch to collections. Okay. So they moved because in the 2.x releases, all the Ansible modules, which are what make the magic happen. So if you want to copy a file, that's actually a, a module in its own right. Right. Um, and all the modules, I think there were, I can't remember how many thousand there were, but it was a four-digit number when I published the right. third edition. Right, which was the, the reason they, they took so long to to update from like uh, Python 2 to Python 3, right? It's because, as you mentioned, all these other modules, the, the core they could control, but the, all the other modules and it was a big lift. Oh, huge, huge. And then because all the modules were linked to the release of Ansible, it's yeah. like, you know, if, if a network vendor released a module with a bug in it, or they release new firmware that requires an update to the module, yeah. They can't just release a new module. They have to wait for the release cadence of Ansible to include it. So right. Right. the whole thing was getting, it wasn't scalable, um, yeah. either for the team managing the code or for the vendors who rely on Ansible for their configuration work. So they split yeah. out the core engine of Ansible and the you know the base modules that do the really fundamental stuff. Yeah. Um, so that became what's now Ansible Core, I think. Mm-hmm. I know that it was called Ansible Base for a while. It's now Ansible Core. Okay. And then everything else went into collections. So, I see. Um, which are self-contained packages of Ansible modules, but can be roles, can be even playbook code, other bits. I and see. Well, so, I... yeah. 
Yeah, I, I have to admit, I mean, the last I worked with Ansible was around 2.5, um, like closely, you know, write a lot of playbook because uh, between 2.2 and 2.5. So as you alluded to, there's a, a certain type of release cadence with Ansible. And between 2.2 to 2.5, there was a big change uh, for networking. So between like 2.3, 2.4, there were other changes, but may not pertain to networking. But networking modules really had a big lift in uh, in 2.5. And then uh, and that's where I worked on. But um, so all of these stuff are are exciting and new to me about, you know, they doing it Ansible core, Ansible collection and so on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the book, it's like every, every chapter has been touched if for no other reason than that the best practice now is to put the fully qualified collection name in ah, makes sense. a module. So rather than a module called copy, you mm-hmm. should refer to it as ansible.builtin.copy. Right. Which, really long-winded but it makes sure that you don't clash you know someone could come along cisco for example could come along and create a module called copy that mm-hmm. kind of copies your configuration off the switch for example sure now if that happened ansible can't differentiate between the built-in copy module and the cisco one because right. they're both copy right. so you have to now include the collection name in the um, in the actual module call. Well, I say have to. You don't have to. I've, I proved in the book there's an example where I show some of Jesse Keating's original code still mm-hmm. runs on Ansible 4.3, I think, which mm-hmm. was in the book. Um, right. But there's there's an order of precedence, and Ansible will you know look in this sequence for modules, so and it'll pick the first one that it comes across. So there is a danger that you could get unexpected behavior. Let's put it right. Right, so it's like they taken the a book out of a um, a book out of <laughs> no pun intended, but no pun intended. No, yeah, no no um, uh, a note out of Python, right? Like explicit is better than implicit. So it's better if you just spell out and say this is the the collection or the module that I want, and I don't want you to work behind your magic on picking the right presidents uh, for me. Yeah, it, it's absolutely that. So the whole book's been updated. So everything is using the best practice for naming. Um, a whole chapter went in on collections, how they're put together, how to write your own, because it's like, well, if this is a big thing in Ansible, you can't have a book called Mansering Ansible that completely ignores collections and how to build them. Yeah, that's, <laughs> there's sort of a logic there, right? Right, so, you could, but it just uh, doesn't do, uh, may not be well received. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then, as as you've said about networking and Ansible, um, I put more networking examples in the, there is a chapter at the back, which is networking with Ansible. Now, the book is obviously not focused specifically on network automation, but I found, I tried to find some switch images where you can download the firmware for free. Um, yeah because obviously I don't want to tell people, hey, go out and pirate this firmware from this manufacturer. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can do that in a published book. Right. But there's certain manufacturers who release their firmware for three, and then you can run it up on something like GNS3 and run Ansible against it, which is really great because people can then get some experience in network automation without having to go out and buy their own tin to play with. Yeah, for sure. It's... um. So I have the uh, the book uh, table of contents pull up. If you're watching the YouTube video, if you're listening, you know I kind of describe what it is. It's you know so it was chapter thirteen on network automation. And when I was looking at the book or you know kind of skim through the chapters, I believe you used like Vias 
which is an open source uh, network operating system. And you also gave examples for F5, which is you know, obviously not free, but it's a very common load balancer vendor that you have um, operation uh, playbook with. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I think I even found that you could, that if you sign up for a free account, you can download the, some of the Arista switch images as well. Oh, so for sure. Yeah. Like the EOS in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So EOS obviously is uh, from Arista and, uh, you know, very popular, especially among the, the cloud providers, um, you know, that, that you work with. Um, yeah. So no, I, if I look at the table contents, right, like it's actually really cool and very, very inclusive. So I, I look at, you know, you kind of start from the beginning on the system architecture um, and then you you kind of go through like the fundamental stuff like uh, secrets, security, and then you move into enterprise management, uh, more, more details about the Jinja 2 templates. And then you kind of open it broad and uh, tackle each of the fields like roles and uh, how to extend Ansible, troubleshooting Ansible, and so on. So is that is that kind of like the flow of the book or am I uh, misinterpreting kind of your intent to take the readers uh, through the through the Ansible journey? No, no, you you absolutely nailed it. That is that is how it's done. So we, it's broken down trying to start with the real fundamentals and the basics mm-hmm. of Ansible and then building up to so towards the end of it it's looking at, so for example, chapter 11, minimizing downtime with rolling deployments. So by that stage in the book, we're actually getting to, okay, this is how you might use Ansible in a real world scenario, as opposed to the the preceding chapter, chapter 10 on extending Ansible. There's a lot of Python in there. So we're still looking at the internals of Ansible at that point. And then what's not shown there on the table of contents, but I think if you look at the, the book's table of contents is it's divided into three broad sections. Okay. So, um, but they are exactly as you've described. So you, we're starting with the core and the fundamentals. We're then looking at the Ansible language itself. And then at the end, it's sort of like more real world application, if you will. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think I've seen anywhere else that has these, um, uh, this particular chapter, right? Like, because that combines your real world experience on how do you minimize downtime when you have competing playbooks, maybe changing the same thing, but how do you do, you know, even when you say blue and red team, right? Like when you're rolling things out, how do you gradually roll out? So you can always back out and then the blast radius for any mistake is minimized. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, we both know that's so important, right? Well, yeah, it's important, but it's hard to do, (laughs) especially with automation tools. I mean, you know, you think you think poking your eye hurts. Try like do it in like a thousand times per second. Right. You know, you you don't even have a chance to start. (laughs) Sorry, you were saying? No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I I wrote another book as well, um, which hasn't done as well as Mastering Ansible by my own admission, but um, hands on enterprise automation there you go that one there so that was kind of like it is ansible but it's not specifically an ansible book it's all about my experiences of building linux environments at scale and what i think is the best practice for doing that so that is the sort of the idea behind this book was it was supposed to be the ultimate real world this is how you would build a large-scale linux environment and manage it nice very cool 
Very cool. Yeah, you know, I gotta I gotta check out this book as well. Um, and of course, we'll include all the links in the show notes on both mastering Ansible as well as the hands-on enterprise automation on Linux. Um, something that kind of interests me because you know you wrote this book on Linux, but you also include the whole chapter in uh, mastering Ansible on Windows management. Uh, it's not something that people typically associate with, like managing Windows machine. Uh, with Ansible. Can you talk a little bit into that? Sure. I mean, I we both worked in the technology industry a long time, right? Um, and yeah. th- there's a lot of evangelism, which is not a bad thing in itself, but I've worked with a lot of people who are like, I work with Linux and Windows is awful and you know, <laughs> the let, evil empire. Talk about it. Yeah, you have to reboot it every five seconds and, 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 you know, we all know the stuff. Right. Right. Um, and then the same is true on the other side of the fence as well. It's just the other way around. Yeah. And I I think because I've been so focused on clients for so long, what you learn when you do that is actually being evangelical. It doesn't help anyone because if you go into a business today, they're going to have Windows. They're going to have right. Linux. They, you know, depending on their age, they may have AIX or other stuff knocking around as well. But very <laughs> rarely is one business just one technology across the right. board you know right. and i think you have to be realistic about that personally and so windows is you know there even in linux heavy linux environments my experience is there's always windows servers there yeah and so i think the point of that chapter is to highlight that i can't remember which release it came in now it, it, probably around the same sort of release cadence you were talking about where the networking was enhanced as well but mm-hmm. Basically, all the fundamental features, modules that are there for Linux are now there for Windows as well. So if you can do it for Linux, you can do it for Windows from package installation, manipulating file systems, manipulating the registry, all that kind of thing. And so, you know, repository services like Chocolatey have come okay. about now. So where before you used to have to kind of take MSI packages and figure out how to do unintended, unattended installations. Right. Now there are packaging services for Windows where you can go and say, hey, actually, I just want to install this app and it goes away and does it and you can do it from the command line, which is really mm. cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is true. So at least when I was working with Ansible closely, I remember all the modules were... Uh, most of the modules were written in Python, right, for Ansible. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but the only exception was Windows, and those were written in PowerShell. So uh, I, w- I want to say that was the case. I don't know um, if that's still the case. Um, do, do you have any thoughts about that? So I, I haven't checked on the, I think when I updated my machine the other day, I updated to Ansible 5.3, and I must admit I haven't pulled that apart. Yeah, but yeah, sure. I know when I was working on the the fourth edition that we're talking about here it was all powershell based i see yeah and i i think that fits in very heavily with the the agentless idea of um ansible is you know on a windows on a sorry on a linux environment starting with that you can almost always guarantee there's going to be some sort of python environment installed so because although they say agentless when what they mean is it will have an ssh server running and it will have a Python environment of some sort on there, so right. which is like ninety percent of the Linux distributions you install 
So yeah. it's a pretty yeah. safe bet, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. On Windows, you cannot guarantee Windows is going to have a working Python distribution. Oh, for it. sure. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, yeah, so the, the original Windows was WinRM and PowerShell because you can pretty much guarantee you're going to have PowerShell and WinRM is there. It just needs turning on. Um, what is quite exciting, if you're a geek like I am, is the Windows, as most people probably are aware, they've integrated some tools like OpenSSH and Curl and things like that into yeah. the core distribution. Sure. Ansible, last I checked, it was still in preview, but it works now over OpenSSH to Windows. Oh, okay. Um, oh, interesting. Interesting. Are you talking um, about Windows 11 or are you talking about Windows 12, maybe? So I so I tested this with Windows Server 2019. Oh, so, um, okay, got it. But I it should work with any Windows distribution that has OpenSSH built in. So I think that's mm. Windows 10. I think it's later releases of Windows. Sorry, later releases of Windows 10, Windows 11. Um, I'm not sure going to earlier releases whether you can put a port of OpenSSH on, whether that works mm. or not. That I haven't mm. tried. Yeah. But what I can say is, if Windows comes with an option like you know you load the control panel of the features, optional features to turn on, an open SSH server is listed there. It works. Yeah. That much nice. I did test. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, that's always been kind of a. I mean, having worked for Microsoft, it's always it's kind of funny that um, that I don't know as much as I should about like the Windows system, um, but but definitely as you alluded to, James, um, it's kind of a. I think networking and Windows are kind of bastard childs for for Ansible, just because, um, as you were saying, you know, you can't always bank on the Python interpretation on the networking gears uh, that you were talking about, nor can you bank on for, um, you know, Windows. So I remember, you know, when I was telling people about Ansible for networking, the first thing I changed is always like gather facts, no, right? Connection oh, yeah. local, because you can't really uh, do that for the other. Um, the other networking gears. But one thing good that I think they had the foresight of doing um, was to make things more declarative instead of imperative. So when when you're saying, you know, like uh, copy files, as you were saying, um, if you're saying, or backup configuration, for example, if you're mm -hmm. declarative, you just say true or false or yes or no versus being imperative where you have to go step by step and say, okay, copy file over, copy run start or something like that. So, um, so you know, by the by doing more in declarative, you offload all the heavy work, heavy lifting to the module. And then, you know, then, you know, whether your module use OpenSSH or WinRM or anything like that, you kind of abstracted the way from the user. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where Ansible has been very clever and the framework has been well received by so many developers. L like you say, with networking, equipment you can put all the intelligence all the heavy lifting into the python code in the module and mm -hmm. then it really doesn't matter to the person writing the automation code um you know maybe it's talking over an http api to the switch but that's abstracted away from the user so as long as like you said as long as you turn off fact gathering which is the default i expect python and ssh to be up and running yeah it just it kind of works and it can work over protocols that are masked from the user so it just makes life really easy for people yeah yeah so um 
Cool, cool. Can you tell us a little bit about AWX? So not to be confused with AWS, right? But like AWX, I don't know who does the marketing over there, but they, I don't know, they kind of dropped the ball in this one because I don't know. But um, can you just tell us a little bit about it? What is this? What does it do? How do you get started on that? Sure, sure. So AWX is the, so when, backtrack a little bit, when Red Hat acquired Ansible, Ansible sure. Tower was a closed source product, so you had to buy it. There was no no other option. Right. Red Hat's commitment, my understanding, has always been to open source everything that they do. Mm-hmm. And so they, they kept that promise. They open sourced Ansible Tower, and Ansible Tower became AWX. Um, mm-hmm. As you say, who, who chooses the names? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Probably not with Red Hat anymore, but you know, yeah. who knows? Absolutely. So, and... AWX is a GUI for Ansible, but it's not an IDE is one of the places that a lot of people I've worked with sort of trip up initially is it doesn't let you do anything with playbook development, Mm -hmm. but what it is, is it's an enterprise solution for running your playbooks. So the, the challenge for most businesses is, okay, we put Ansible in. If you end up with all your engineers having Ansible on their workstations, how do you control who ran what? Who's got yeah. the application keys to what? You right. know, like like right. you were saying about poking your eye. You yeah. know, what if you don't even know who's poking your eye a thousand times a second? <laughs> yeah, all <laughs> these rogue playbooks that's running in the wild. Like you got to go track it down. Yeah, absolutely. So that could very quickly become is one of those things in technology where we mean well, but actually all we did was we moved the problem somewhere else. Right. You know. Right. Um, so what AWX does is it's a web-based control panel for playbooks. Um, it does credential management, uh, very cleverly. So you can put things like root passwords if you want to, you know, obviously we, we all know we shouldn't be using root passwords, but let's say you did Mm -hmm. that can go into AWX. It's encrypted at rest in the database. You can't see the password in the GUI anywhere but you can through the access control you can let people use that password to run a playbook right so we're not giving away the sort of the the keys to the kingdom as it were through um distributing ssh keys or anything like that right and then it integrates with just about every directory provider that you're most likely to come across so everybody logs in with their own account and then there's a full audit trail of okay bob logged in at you know, this time ran this playbook, this was the outcome. So there's that audit trail that businesses need as well. So it's basically, it is a GUI, it's sort of a point and click for running playbooks, but it's a lot more than that because it's all about the auditability and the control that businesses need running automation at scale. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, I mean, we joke about it, right? But it's, it's very true. Like we do need some kind of, especially in the enterprise environment, some kind of centralized management um, for your rotating your keys, your authentication and authorization levels. So, you know, Bob in this example, you know, maybe he's authorized to touch uh, fulfillment centers, right? Warehouses, but he's not, he shouldn't be let loose on core devices or somebody else who has the expertise on managing, you know, Juniper devices. Um, they shouldn't have the full access to Cisco devices, for example, or something like that. And then at the end of the day, the accountability, as you were mentioning, you know, who did what so that when there's, you know, kind of a uh, root cause analysis, you know, two weeks later, 
then you can actually have audit trail back into like the sequences of events versus you just don't know everybody was using the the same password. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing as well is source control. So just yeah. drop that in there as well. And again, people can do source control on their laptops, but you know, you might forget to do a git pull before you run a program, <laughs> for example, yeah. it's easy to do. You yeah. can configure AWX to, if someone runs a playbook, it can be configured to go out and pull from a Git repository before it does the run. So you yeah. know that everybody's sort of using the same version of code. Yeah. Well, speak for yourself. I always, no, just kidding. <laughs> no, no. We've all been there, right? Like it's 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, you're you're supposed to do something, but, you know, you had one drink too much the night before. Um, so it's always helpful to have these, um, like kind of guardrails for you so you don't fall off the cliff, right? It doesn't it doesn't protect you 100%, but at least it doesn't, you know, it, it helps you to to stay, stay on the right path. And um, and I like the fact that Red has, uh, so the way it was explained to me when you were talking about AWS and Ansible Tower was they kind of took the Fedora, Linux, and uh, Red Hat enterprise kind of approach. So one thing is always, you know, open source and, one step ahead and kind of more experimental and uh, runs faster with features. And the other is kind of stable. If you want an enterprise, you know, enterprise C, you know, security blanket, then here's the more stable release for a Red Hat release. So at least that's how it was explained to me. Um, and it just kind of alluded to what you were talking about on uh, being more stable, having these models of both open source and they could still, you know, kind of, uh, reap the benefits of of their of their product. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, the AWX is definitely a bit bleeding edge. We yeah. um, we put a release in for a customer once that would only accept passwords that were comprised of. Um, you remember the original seven bit ASCII? The first uh, twenty seven characters. Vaguely, yeah. <laughs> uh, before it even went to two fifty six, and they okay. put a pound, uh, British pound symbol in their password. Oh. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Because it couldn't deal with 8-bit ASCII. And I, oh, I don't no. know how this happened, but uh, this was a sort of like, so that that was a bleeding edge experience of AWX. But um, equally, yeah. it was fixed incredibly rapidly. You know, we raised an issue on GitHub and it was fixed in a couple of days. So very yeah, cool. Great community behind it. Very cool. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like Ansible should pay you some kind of commission by now because all these times you were like advocating Ansible and uh, I mean Red Hat or IBM now should pay you some kind of commission. But um, just just to play the devil's advocate, right? So can you think of any situation where Ansible may not be as applicable or where, I don't know, something like Terraform has a leg up? I mean, being an author, I know it's a tough ask, but... Um, <laughs> I wanted. I want you to put on this. I want to put James on the spot and say, is there any situation where Ansible may not be the right tool for you? We'll be back after a quick break. Do you want to change the world? Former Tesla executive turned podcaster Billy Samoa is on a mission to help you do it. His show Inside Out reveals transformational insights that can literally change your life. If you're a change maker who wants to make an impact while you're on this planet, then this is the podcast for you. Through deep dive interviews with the world's most remarkable people, your mind will be filled with new ideas and perspectives that will give you the secrets you need to make your mark. 
Go to insightoutshow.com or subscribe to Insight Out on your favorite podcast platform. So I'm sure there is. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I, I can't sit here and say what I said about Windows and Linux and then go, no, Ansible <laughs> is the right tool for everything, yeah. you, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know other tools well enough to give you a, a sort of well thought out answer on that. Um, yeah. But the way things are in technology, it's like there's two sort of facets to products. One is what is user preference? What do people like? You know, right. I, I did some work with Chef at a previous company. Yeah. And I just found the language very cryptic. Now, that might yeah. just be me. You know, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Chef. It's just like it, it, Chef and I didn't click. So yeah. personal preference. Um, and the other thing is, you know, c- certain automation tools are very much geared towards certain technology. You know, Terraform has certain specialisms in the cloud is my understanding. So sure, sure. Ansible certainly has broad support for the cloud, but you know, if you put Ansible and Terraform head to head, what would you find? I, I don't know because I've never tried it. But yeah, I think you know one one has to remain open minded about this stuff. Yeah, that's fair and honest. Um, I think so. It used to be, I think for me, kind of the stock answer. I mean, if you put me on the spot, would have been if you have lots and lots of Windows machine. It's like you know the percentage of it's less, uh, you know, like if you have majority of Windows machine and you have to do it through, um, I don't know, domain controller or whatever, then mm-hmm. um, I don't know it well enough like like you, right? I mostly work in Linux environment. Um, but but I think your answer was fair and honest, right? Like you, you got, you just have to be kept up with the trends. You have to know your client's environment and uh, the kind of technology stack in the background, right? Like if you use GitLab and it's all, you know, Puppet and Chef and um, Rails, then uh, maybe in your automation framework, you got to gear toward more of a Rail backend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I think it's just most, certainly if you were doing this as a business, most businesses that I've worked with would evaluate several products side by side before they committed themselves to one. Um, yeah. And they would have some sort of matrix or scorecard or something that would be this is why we're choosing this. And I, I think that's that's a sane approach. You've got to look at things on their own merit and and what's right for your use case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking from like a true customer advocate, you know, as you are, <laughs> to say, hey, you know, that's what that's what's required. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to ask you. I know we're coming up on the hour, but I want to ask you um, from your expert advice how can people get started with automation and ansible so there's i mean there's myriad of resources yeah buy your book for example yeah yeah that would be a great (laughs) one yeah buy buy two copies buy one for a friend absolutely yeah exactly and and one one for your parents and one for your kids and yeah uh, and then we'll talk yeah for sure but um no i mean all, all that aside i think it depends a lot on your preferred learning style you know some people are more visual video oriented some people are more written word oriented yeah. for learning style things like that you know sure. um i know i personally i think the ansible documentation is very good yeah uh, i agree a lot. It, it's one of my 
better open source products. You know, it's one where I really think, hey, you can go to this and look up the official documentation and you're almost certainly going to find the answer. Yeah. Um, and you can't say that for all the open source things that are out there. Hell, I mean, you know, I've written some software and have I documented it well? Nice. No, I'll do that later. You know. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> And it's like that blog I never updated. Later hasn't come yet. So <laughs> Right. That the book will get updated before you update your blog or yeah, your open absolutely. source project documentation. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean I, I always say to people, go to the official Ansible documentation as your starting point. Um I think there's some great material out there, great training courses and things like that. Um I recently took the the RHCE because mine's expiring. Oh, okay. It, in June. And when I took the RHC on Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6, it was all system administration tasks. Now on 8, it's all Ansible based. Oh, okay. So you actually, although the same core tasks, you know, I, I know you're not allowed to talk about Red Hat exams, but this is all on the Red Hat website. So I'm pretty sure, sure I'm it's public saying, information. Yeah, absolutely. It's like they expect you now to solve all the problems with Ansible. Oh, got it. Okay. So it's more integrated into the Red Hat ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you were specifically Red Hat integrated, you would probably do well to go on sort of Red Hat's training, which is, yeah. you know, I'm not affiliated with them. It's just like, I actually have taken their training and it, it you know, I passed their exams. So I think the, the results speak for themselves, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. So Red Hat, if you're, if you're listening or watching, you know, give James a call. His uh, account number is here. That you yeah, could like absolutely. wire your commission to him because he's been your biggest fan and advocate. He wrote a book about Ansible and now he's talking about getting a Red Hat engineering certification. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Take cash as well. So it's all yeah, good. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter which kind of a you know a currency, you know, British pound be good, US dollar works as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> no, but I, I would I would definitely uh second on on these um Ansible documentation being excellent, you know, it's it's free, it's it's great. Just go take a look. Uh, for me, personal like a personal experience was when I submit my Ansible module, like the technical bid was pretty straightforward. Like the biggest back and forth between me and the maintainer to get the code merged was upon documentation, right? Like they were talking about you didn't explain this well, you were missing a period. So to back to your point, James, about they really take care of. Um, the, the kind of documentation that they want, because at the end of the day, it saves them time, right? As maintainer, and they only have so much hours. So the preferred way was people to get their documentation first. And coincidentally, that'd be a great way to get started with Ansible, just taking a look at their documentation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I when I was digging into the code and updating the book to the third edition, there there's some bits in the in the book that we talked about where we look at writing your own modules and things like that and yeah the, it it shows in there how you put the documentation in and as as you say ansible made this really core to the project you cannot submit code without documentation right so it, and i just think that's not a common behavior to see mm-hmm. um but i think it's such an inspired idea because otherwise we're, we've all done it. It's like, yeah, I, I've done the hard bit. I've done the code, right? People will know how to use it. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> With my fingers crossed. Yeah. And then and then you, you know, five years later, you wonder why there's only, you know, three stars to your GitHub repo. You're like, hey, it's excellent. Why don't people use it? 
They don't really know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because not everyone's got time to read the code to figure it out, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's a reason why they, they want to just download and, and be done with it, right? Like the soccer practice at five for their kid is more important than reading your code and figuring out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Hey, James, it's it's been great. I mean, it's, it's good to see you. Um, a lot of stuff I, I, don't, I didn't know about prior to our conversation that I learned today. So I thank you very much for for taking the time and being here. I, I think it really benefits the listener as well as myself. It's always just the the, the, the most fun part uh, for me. It's always talk to a person like you and just kind of glean and pick their brains upon uh, things that they feel passionate about. Um, but you know, before we leave, I, I want to ask if, if there's any call to action besides buying your book or you know, just technology in general, right? Because you also mentioned your empowerment coach. So any call to action for people out there who may be wanting to get started in technology, who want to get started in Ansible or just life in general? So I think my my biggest piece of advice to, to anyone in technology really would be don't forget the human beings. Don't forget the why behind why things are done because I, I, I've fallen prey to it myself. You know, I, I actually enjoy technology. I love technology and it's like, yeah, th- this is great because, like you said, it's the new version. It's like the yeah. version that went up, so that's got to be good, right? Yeah. Um, there's no psychology in that. There's no actual sort of like, why does it benefit me? And the, one of the reasons that I got so passionate about automation was just bringing this right back to the early part of our discussion today is I realized that this is one of the solutions to the whole firefighting, the whole intelligent people bogged down and fixing the same problems over and over again. Yeah. And I've done a couple of talks on this. I'm very interested in positive psychology and things like that. It intersects with my coaching practice. And you're going to share a link, I believe, to a talk that I did at the London Ansible meetup, which is on YouTube. Absolutely. Um, Same talk I did at Ansible Fest last year virtually, but I, I think that that you have to sign up to see that. So we'll share the YouTube one. But um, yeah, if just if anyone's interested, please go out, have a look at that. And then you've got my social media handles. Get get in touch if you want to discuss further. Yeah, no, I I like I really um, dig what you said about it's all about the human beings. Right. Like at the end of the day, who cares about automation unless it can help you. Right. Um, and I, I, we joked about it, but it wasn't. Um, but it's also true that your son's soccer practice at five is more important is more important to you than to you know reading some code or play through playbooks or fundle around with yaml files um so so i really i really like that bit about it's all about the people and you know of course we're, we will link on the uh presentation by james over at the ansible uh, over at the london ansible london meetup as well as i mean we'll put the link in for your uh Ansible presentation as well. So if people so choose to, you know, register behind the wall, it's free, but it just just have to register, and that uh, people could find you there. So um, uh, you mentioned Twitter and LinkedIn, so people uh, people could find you on Twitter and LinkedIn. I I, uh, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, the the username James Freeman nine five nine. There's a lot of James Freemans in the world. I can hide in a sort of obscurity by just using my real name, which is, I'm not yeah. sure if that's 
good thing or not, but I was like, <laughs> I tried to get James Freeman and it was taken. I was like, fine, I will add these numbers. They mean something to me. We don't want to go into that now. But right. generally, if you look on Twitter, LinkedIn, GitHub with that handle, you will find me. Probably other places as well. Awesome. Hey, thanks again for being on the show, James. I really enjoy our talk and uh, appreciate your time. No, it's been amazing, Eric. Really appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Thanks. So thank you for listening to the Network Automation Nerds podcast today. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other podcast platforms. Until next time, bye-bye.